This is the IBJ Podcast for the week of May 30th, 2022, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. As you've probably heard, last week was an absolute blockbuster for the state of Indiana and its efforts to attract more companies and operations dealing in electric vehicles and alternative energy. Car maker Stellantis, formerly Fiat Chrysler, announced it would team up with Samsung SDI to create a $2.5 billion electric vehicle battery manufacturing plant in Kokomo. It would employ about 1,400 people when it opens in 2025. Stellantis is all in on electric vehicles. The firm already announced last fall that it would retool its Kokomo transmission plants to create vehicle transmissions that can be used in hybrid vehicles. The timeline is a little fuzzy because it depends on many different elements in a rapidly evolving industry. But within 10 to 15 years, car makers in North America could cross the threshold where they're making more vehicles with electric engines than those with simply internal combustion gas-powered engines. And while it's good news that the state is gathering momentum for the transition to electric vehicles, that changeover will be disruptive for hundreds of companies in the state in the automotive supply chain. Some of the components for gas-powered cars aren't needed in pure electric vehicles, while some components would remain but would need to be redesigned. Companies will need to adapt somehow or potentially go out of business. The disruption could throw thousands of Indiana employees out of work. A group at Purdue University has been working to quantify the potential disruptions to hundreds of employers and come up with some solutions to rescue their revenue streams. They produced a study released last fall that focuses on 14 counties that have among the state's highest concentrations of automotive suppliers. Our guest this week is Ananth Iyer, professor of management at Purdue's Cranert School of Management, who was part of the group that produced the study. And we asked him to explain how Indiana manufacturers and others in the automotive supply chain could find different avenues to success as we drive toward the electric vehicle era. Here's our conversation. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Anand Iyer, Professor of Management at Purdue University's Cranet School of Management. Thank you so much for making time. Thank you, Mason. Glad, glad to be here. It, we talked a little bit before the podcast started, but I do want to set the scene a bit. So Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb has made a number of moves in recent years mm-hmm. to position the state to take advantage of really the global growth in electric vehicles. Uh, there's a new state commission at work right now evaluating what the state needs to do to become a major player in electric vehicle production. And one of the things they're looking at specifically is how Indiana's manufacturers for traditional gas-powered automobiles and their suppliers can adapt to the specs and needs of electric vehicles. And my understanding, that has been a focus of your research at Purdue. Uh, yes, absolutely. So, so um, I run a center uh, called the Dauk Center for the Management of Manufacturing Enterprises and the Global Supply Chain Management Institute. And over the years, we've done projects with a number of uh, state agencies, Department of Transportation and others. And our focus is on the automotive supply chain. And Indiana has a large number of manufacturers involved in manufacturing, and they're involved in the supply chain. And what I mean by that is, 
Most of the time, we look at the assembly plant that produces the final car. But the assembly plant gets fed engines, transmissions, and dashboards, and major components. So th those are called the tier one suppliers. They, in turn, have tier two suppliers who make the components, and tier three and tier four. So there's a whole sort of tree structure supporting this assembly plant. And so when one thinks about any changes to the automobile, it has a ripple effect on everybody in the system. So it's a much bigger issue. And Indiana certainly has a very large presence in this automotive supply chain. And one can just think about, you know, Fort Wayne and, and Kokomo region. And you can think about Princeton, Indiana, Lafayette with the Subaru plant, Greensburg with Honda, lots of assembly plants that we can remember, but one should remember a very large tree of component suppliers. Mm -hmm. So this is a very big deal for India. Yeah. So give me a sense really of the breadth of the products and even the services that are provided in Indiana that, that will end up benefiting those assembly plants. So, so uh, Indiana has, if you start, if we start, we were focusing on individual, small, medium-sized firms in addition to the large ones. So there are people producing fabrication. They're producing little parts that go into cars and that might be part of a component. There are people producing electrical components, capacitors, wires, winding, you know, wires for motors, et cetera. And there are people producing, uh, you know, parts for lights, parts for the, the, the sides of the car, uh, you know, wiper blades, a lot of very, very detailed components that when you sit in the car, you see. But there are also larger assemblers. So all of this goes in. So that's one part of the making of the car. But when one thinks about the footprint of the automotive industry, it also includes all the repair facilities and all the people who, who basically recycle the car and the scrap and so on and so forth. So there's, a, there's an entire chain. And this, the reason this chain is important is in the future, the more efficient we are in creating a circular loop that after you use the car, I mean, most of the time these days, you know, if you're replacing your tires, they charge you a small fee and they take the tires away from you so that the tires can be can can go through a recycling chain. And the same is true with your batteries. When you, you know, when, when you replace your battery, they might give you credit for the leftover amount in the core, but then the battery goes through the recycling. So those are all part of this, this chain. And when I if I were to think about it, I would think about all of it together. Any changes to the automobile will certainly change what goes into the automobile, but it will also change the people who have to support you when you own this automobile. And one of the things that a lot of people are talking about is, well, if I have an electric vehicle, where will I go to charge it? You know, we're used to going to a gas station. Will I go to the equivalent of a gas station or will this be more available because anybody with a parking lot and a high voltage line can put up a few Oh, you know, even local neighborhoods, I presume, can have places where you can go plug in your car and get in charge, if not in your home. So those are all, that is the footprint that I would, I would urge people to think about when they think about it. I don't know much about electric cars, I, but I know when, when I'm in one, it just seems like a regular car. Yes. I mean, I, I've got, the, my seat looks the same, my rear mirror looks the same, uh, the vents look the same. Uh, I mean, how much of it is, is different? Yeah, so some estimates basically say that uh, the electric car is a simpler car and will have 40% fewer components and potentially take 30% less labor to assemble. So if you think about the 40% fewer components, uh, basically the engine disappears and gets replaced by a battery. 
potentially the transmission could go away and be replaced by wire harnesses and motors could be on individual wheels to give power that'll, that'll drive things. So when those things change, each one of those things, the engine has a lot of components, the transmission has a lot of components, some of the axles might change. So really uh, the number to think about is 40% fewer components, 30% less labor, a simpler car to assemble. And this last part is my conjecture. So the people take it. And that is that when the car becomes simpler to assemble, it provides opportunities for people to create unique designs that will appeal to the driver. This could be an absolutely fun future. Cars don't all have to look white and like Tesla. They can be more unique. They can be reflecting the creativity of the designer and the engineer. So that's the positive opportunity right. that is possible. But for the time being, if, if I'm a manufacturer and I make components for a gas-powered car that are not present in an electric vehicle, I'm in trouble. Well, so that is that is really part of the study we did. So yeah. we had some funding from the Lilly Endowment, and we were looking at 14 counties around us, you know, Purdue's and Tippecanoe County. And we actually looked at that specific problems. We looked at every one of the manufacturers. So this was a study called, you know, the, the EV manufacturing opportunity, pain or gain. And the, 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 we really think this is an opportunity. And let me sort of explain how this opportunity would be and just give you some numbers. So when we looked at the manufacturer, currently involved in the automotive industry who produce components that will not be required in the electric vehicle. That number worked out to about 25% of the manufacturers involved in the automotive industry. So that is, that is a big number. I mean, that is, that's a whole bunch of firms, close to 500 small firms, et cetera. So we then, went, we then dug in a little deeper and said, what could they do to participate? One thing they could do is start if they were producing, uh, you know, if they were producing a component that is not going to be used in the automotive industry, but that same part in, is used in other industries. So I'm going to use an example, not doesn't fit perfectly, but imagine that you're making pumps. Okay, you're making a, sorry, like a, a pump, pump, a pump, yeah, a, so pump. a pump which will, you know, which will be, you know, moving all your your uh, coolant around, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So now you might see. You might say, well, there are other industries that use pumps. Similarly, if you're producing a motor, other people using motors, or you know, think about uh, various sort of uh, fabricated components. There are other people. So one is to move to adjacent industries that use the same capabilities that the company has. So they're shifting from automotive to other industries. So that's one direction. A second direction, and we've quantified all of this. A second direction is uh, uh, for the United States, uh, we purchase data of everything being imported into Indiana by everybody. And the federal government, basically, you know, because it's a shipping manifest, we can look at all the, you know, over 30 million containers that come in for the last seven years. And we actually try to figure out what component came from which country to which company. So once we have that, and we have that for Indiana, and we could say, well, here are the things being imported. Uh, they use capabilities similar to what you have. So you can approach this local Indiana company and then make the business case to say, hey, I'm here local. I can give you service. You can avoid supply. So that's a second sort of a, a, a direction. You know? So these we sort of quantified each one of these possibilities where you move to an adjacent industry. You try to do this, what we call uh, you know, becoming a dual source and other things we said is if your volumes were declining, see as a component, look further upstream that is above you to say what, uh, 
product do you go into? And can you talk to the other people making those products and say, can we brand ourselves as a, as a complete component rather than me selling a little piece? So for each one of these, what we call you know, strategies, we've quantified how a particular company can take the data it has and come up with ways to, ways to adapt. Uh, as a public university, we think of this as opportunities for our students to learn about the change happening out there. And so uh, one of the things we've been doing is pulling together a collection of manufacturers who are interested in these opportunities. And at this point, we're just educating them with the analysis being done by some of our students who basically get to learn about the company, get to learn the challenges, et cetera. So that's the approach we think would be useful. Uh, we're a university, we're not a consulting firm. So if anybody wants to use this, we put it out as reports. We tell them, hey, you can do it yourself. If you want some of the students to do it, you can either assist with them doing it as part of a class project, or you can fund them for a summer or fund them for a semester. And you know, Purdue students are doing it to learn, therefore these are. So these are the different modalities in which we're engaging people to sort of think about the, the, the possibility. So let me go back to the, the 25% number real quick, or the 25% rate. If potentially 25% of the whole automotive supply chain in Indiana is affected, how many jobs is that? Yeah, so for the 14 counties, because I want to give you, try to give you accurate numbers for the 14 counties we had, which includes Lafayette and which includes Kokomo. So there are a lot of automotive there. Uh, the 25% of the firms accounted for about 5,000 employees impacted. Okay. So, so, and then, you know, so, and, and, and the report gives you uh, an estimate because we, we, we can't exactly quantify the dollar estimate because we only know these are the firms and we're not sure whether they're doing other things, but, but that's the order of magnitude. Now, uh, this might sound self-serving, but uh, as a university, we think the best way to enable uh, Indiana employees to have a fighting chance is to give them a chance to train themselves to compete in this new industry. And to basically not be so callous as to say, you know, go learn programming, but to really think about adjacent skills. I mean, if you're a welder, could you learn about welding in some, some other adjacent category? What are the adjacent industries and other things? But yeah, so the, the general number is 25%, but the 25% is for this fairly automotive intensive set of counties. So the, the, the way I would think about is of the companies involved in automotive, potentially 25% could see a very significant shortfall. Many others might see some of the components they make go away. However, in our analysis, there's enough pie expansion available so that most of it can be recovered. It's not that this is a doom and gloom. The reason we think of, think of this as an opportunity is once we look at the competencies of the firms, there's enough business to go around. So the, so the way I would say is for, for firms to look at their capabilities, not their current products. So many people are capable of doing a lot more. Right. They decide to make a few products and you can't say if those products go away, everything collapses. Because if you retreat and say, what are my capabilities? You say, well, I'm capable of doing a lot more. I happen to be doing this because there were enough volumes. But if I have to retreat and think again, then I might choose some other things to do. And we're thinking that that retreat and thinking about other things to do might actually work out very well because along with it might come opportunities to get 
some training in new technologies that are more comfortable for the person given their existing capabilities. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IVJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm. With more than 625 attorneys across 11 offices, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ Podcast and our conversation with Ananth Iyer of Purdue University's Cranert School of Management. Yeah, so you anticipated a few of my questions about yeah, how we educate the workforce, essentially. Yeah, so, so the first thing I think that's worth thinking about is, you know, if you get people to learn something completely different. So imagine that I'm a welder and you tell me to go learn Python or Java or some such programming language. That's too big a shift. But if I'm a welder and you tell me, hey, you were welding for this particular thing, you're going to use a different weld and you're going to do it in a different context. I don't know. You're going to use it for some medical. You're going to use it. That's, that shift is a little easier. Okay. So I think it's, it's important to sort of think about how we think of that, how that shift happens and how we can use technology to assist in that shift. So for us, all universities believe that everybody can learn. I mean, otherwise we wouldn't be in business. <laughs> and, and so as an educator, a part of my thing is I don't complain about the student who doesn't know. That student is a customer who came to us because they didn't know, and it's an opportunity to teach them. So if we take that perspective, and we are empathetic to building human capital. That's the real thing. So if we have a workforce that says, well, you know, there are a whole bunch of entities in the state who will help me manage this transition, then it's a lot calmer process. So there's a, there's a term that's sort of starting to make the rounds in policy circles and now in universities called just transitions. I mean, transitions in the industry that are just. And by just, I mean are recognizing the community, are recognizing the people who have to learn. And don't just say, it's going to happen, go get educated. But really give people a pathway saying, here's my skill set. What are the things I can consider doing? How can I acquire it? Where can I go? And who can help me? And if there is that view, I am pretty confident that we have uh, you know, a, a capable enough workforce that's been delivering very competitive manufacturing. Uh, they didn't choose for this transition to happen this rapidly. But given the fact that we all decide this is good for us, why not organize it in a manner? So that's, the, that's at least the perspective that we think would help. What's the timeline for this transition from like IC engines to electrical engines? So there are a lot of forecasts uh, and, and, and some of them have speeded up quite a bit. So General Motors says, that it's going to produce 50% of the vehicles as electric vehicles by 2030. Volkswagen says it'll stop producing IC engines by 2035. So in automotive circles, this is a very, very short period. Yeah. I mean, if, which really means that when that happens, it's going to be very quick. You know, as, as with all things, we should have started yesterday, right? But look, 
it's not completely clear because if you look at that range, if it's one and a half million, it's a drop in the bucket of the 18 million vehicles sold each year. If it is 6 million by 2030, then now we're getting into a number like 30% rapidly growing. And the shape of that curve is what we call sort of its exponential growth of the fraction, right? So that is the question as to which one of these two it'll be, which is why it's complicated. It's complicated because we haven't decided which kind of battery we're going to use. Everybody is experimenting with the batteries. We're not sure whether we'll have the material for the batteries. We're not sure how we're going to put all the charging stations in and who's going to put them and how it's going to happen. And currently, anybody going to buy an electric vehicle is going to find them to be very expensive. And that's because the battery is is potentially 50% of the price of the car, and it's expensive. So all of this is not sorted out. And so if you tell the public, well, go ahead and buy this thing, they say, well, you know, I'm a little nervous. I need this to get to work. So that is why the range is very high. It could either happen very quickly and all the companies are making announcements. I mean, you mentioned, uh, you know, announcements in Indiana, Stellantis and other people. We're in a transition period and it's not clear how quick. The best we can do whenever things are uncertain, and it, it, I don't want this to sound callous, but is to be flexible. If you're flexible, then you can seize the moment faster than everybody else. You detect, you're flexible, and you say, hey, if it's, going, if it's going to take a little longer, then we can adjust our flexibility. But the one thing that will be beneficial to get going quickly is educating the workforce to understand the opportunity. So it's not something that is thought of, that is looked at with fear, but is looked at as, oh, you know, that's a wonderful opportunity. I learned a few interesting things. I can bring a lot to the table. And uh, if the value addition of an employee goes up, usually wages go up. So the only reason the word technology is used not to substitute somebody, but to assist them to do doing more so they can, you know, so they can correspondingly earn more. So that is the mindset which would get a lot of this thing to move from, let's not adopt this in Indiana because then we don't have to worry about it because that won't work, to let's find a way to say, that all of the responsible stakeholders are there to make it a great future. And we're competing. We're going to compete against all the states around us with Ohio, Michigan, Tennessee, Kentucky, Illinois, et cetera. So why not, why not focus on that? That's, that's the way we see it. Right. And some, we should say, I mean, some component manufacturers have already started making this transition. Yes. Yes. Um, we mentioned that the Stellantis and for another reason, but it occurred to me that it wasn't too long ago, maybe a year ago or so, that they announced that they would invest, I think, $230 million to retool their Kokomo plants yes. to produce electric vehicle transmissions. Yes, yes. I think one of the questions, which is an open question, uh, I certainly think it's worth considering, is you know between the internal combustion engine and the battery electric vehicle, there's, the, there's a pathway that uses a plug-in hybrid electric vehicle. Okay. And a plug-in hybrid doesn't need to have a, a battery that needs to go 270 to 300 miles. It can have a battery that goes 40 miles, okay? and the rest could be an engine. Now, why would that make sense? Most of us drive about, you know, if you look at all the trips, most of us drive about 25 to 28 miles a day, which means that you're going to be on the battery, 
then when you come back home, if you remember to plug it in, then the next day you start with another 40 miles. So potentially 90 to 95 percent, you know, slightly north of 90 percent of our trips could be on the battery electric vehicle, much lower price point, keeping both. Okay. Now, why would one consider doing that? Lower price points, slightly higher cost to operate, because if you go long distance, you would switch over to the, to the, to the engine. But most of your trips, most of the days would be on a battery. That, to me, might be a solution that we could go through so that we could have affordable cars, no range anxiety, et cetera. And of course, you know, there are plug-in hybrid electric vehicles available already. I mean, uh, uh, in, in, in Europe, it's a much bigger fraction of the total electric vehicles sold. So of the order of 45 to 50% of the electric vehicles that they call electric vehicles are really plug-in hybrids with a range of about 40 miles, much lower in the US. So that those all are still possibilities that might. Now, how big a deal, speaking of Stellantis, how big a deal to the state's transitioning automobile industry is the fact that Stellantis and Samsung just a couple of days ago announced they're building a $2.5 billion mm-hmm. electric vehicle battery plant in yeah. Kokomo. Yeah, it's first, it is a very big deal because uh, the key thing, the key parameter for batteries is the price per kilowatt hour of the battery. That has to come down. Now, if it comes down below $50 per kilowatt hour, it's going to be incredibly competitive with the IC engine. Now, everybody's trying to drive down the number. I believe uh, Tesla claims they're just below $100 per kilowatt hour. The way you bring this down, so this is business business school speak, is to get the learning curve to kick in. And to get the learning curve to kick in, you need to have very high volumes of production. And the production volumes will, will basically be focused on this gigafactory that we'll have to sort of think about. So the reason these, these factories tend to be very large is that the way you get the cost per kilowatt hour down is by producing very, very large volumes. That is the, that is the story. So yes, uh, batteries are very heavy. They're potentially 50% of the cost of the car. And whoever can get the price per kilowatt hour down is going to have an incredible competitive advantage. So one of the things I think we should celebrate is how many battery plants we have in the state, because that's going to be important. Now, as you'll notice, uh, you mentioned Stellantis and Samsung. So basically, they're trying to create like a joint effort so that everything in that battery plant goes into the Stellantis car, right? right. So everybody is connecting up the upstream supply. And so it's important to attract... Uh, now, th- this doesn't mean that the battery plant should be next door, but if it is next door, then effectively transportation costs go down dramatically. The battery can just, you know, just like the, the Tesla plant in, in Nevada, the battery can exit the battery manufacturing and go directly into the production line for the car. So yeah, I think these are very big deals. The result of this focus on the learning curve and driving down the cost per kilowatt hour is that it'll take a lot of engineering, a lot of manufacturing, you know, a lot of material scientists, uh, you know, just inherently a, a lot of, of, of human capital to get that to be successful. So yeah, I celebrate that. I look forward to more such announcements. And uh, you know, our, our states around us is also putting runs on the board. And so I hope we have plans to put our runs on the board. 
Now, one of the things that is attractive to the state about, about a project like this is they plan to hire 1,400 workers yes. to help staff the plant. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when we talk about, you know, what are opportunities for people that might be transitioning out of IC, uh, internal combustion related car manufacturing, mm-hmm. I, I guess this would be an example of a yes. different kind of career they could go into. Yes. Are, now, are these manufacturing jobs and these battery plants, are these necessarily difficult? Do they require retraining? So, they- so that, yeah, so a good question. I think it would be a combination of things, right? And, and you know, since uh, all car manufacturers, one of the things that they have to assure the customer is the quality. And there's a whole bunch of detail that needs to be taken care of for the electric vehicles to work as planned. So whatever we discussed earlier, that is, you know, look at the employees, how can you train them? Some of them might be just, you know, retraining people who are working in one particular area of the shop versus other. Some things will look the same on the surface, but will look different. I mean, you mentioned the dashboard, the steering wheel, you know, you can still have a body of the car, but a lot of those things would have to become lightweighted more than they otherwise are to compensate for the heavy battery. So, yeah, so I think it'll be a combination, the combination of learning new skills and uh, and sort of retraining, uh, retraining from existing skills. The part that one has to keep track of is the fact that there's going to be 30% less labor. So we have to expand the pie on other things we do. And but those, if I've been if I've been hired by this manufacturing plant, yes. So is are those jobs? I mean, relatively similar in compensation to what I would be making somewhere else in the industry. I I would in fact I want to say that they might be even better because uh, and the reason is because my guess and this is a guess because I don't know the details of the plant. My guess is that these jobs will will require a greater use of technology. And whenever you have jobs using technology, technology helps increase productivity. We learn it with everything we do. And whenever the productivity increases of of an employee, that means the value creation they're offering increases and wages follow. So most jobs that pay more are the jobs in which you're using greater amount of technology. So basically, I mean, in, in business speak, it's sort of this mix of labor and capital. And, and what, makes the, what makes the United States competitive is because we can adjust this mix and adopt the state-of-the-art technology, which allows the wage growth, quality of life, et cetera, to grow. So I fully, I mean, at least my forecast would be, is that those jobs will require use of greater amounts of technology. And because of that, there'll be good jobs. I mean, in fact, if, we, if you drive down I-65 and I start looking at the wage rates, even offered by Frito-Lay, I mean, close to Lafayette, Frito-Lay says, you know, $21 to $42 an hour to work in their plants. So those numbers, those numbers are big. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, who was it? Walmart just announced that their drivers are going to make $85,000 to $120,000 a year. So when you look at all of these things, there are things changing and they're changing because all those jobs are going to require adoption of greater amounts of technology, but potentially they would allow a greater fraction of the workforce to enjoy a middle class or upper middle class life, which would be great for everybody, you know, because in, in some sense, you know, spending power increases, people are doing jobs where they're using technology, and it's not thought of as I should be against this because it's bad for me, but we thought of as I'm going to be for it because it's going to allow me to, to think of technology as being my friend because it increases my productivity, increases value creation. So that is the direction 
that would be the positive spiral in all of this. How receptive have companies around the state been to the data in your report? Do they, does it seem on like a whole, they have a sense of urgency about this or are they caught by surprise? So the first is, so we have, we've actually created a, a little working group to get the ball rolling. And we had somewhere between 35 and 40 companies participate. All of them are either currently involved with, you know, with the electric vehicle industry or if they are, they, if, they, if they were an IC engine, they're looking for opportunities. So many of these are from their management side. They're saying, we want to participate. We see opportunities for growth. Those who are in the electrical side of the business, they have started massively investing to participate, to compete. So I think on the management side, this is something that everybody sees as an opportunity. The key question for them is how will they bring along all their employees and, to, and you know get them to understand that this is a transition, et cetera. You know, Indiana has been doing manufacturing for a very long time and being excellent at it. So I am pretty confident that as long as people keep their eyes and ears open, figure out a way to leverage all of the possible resources available in the state, this, I think, is a golden opportunity for everybody to shine. This is completely fascinating. And as you say, I mean, really uh, important uh, for the economic health of the state. Yes. And, and I, you know, I think this is a great opportunity for us in the university to learn and participate. But it's also a great opportunity to bring a whole bunch of different stakeholders together to sort of think positive. So we really think, you know, uh, rather than the gla glass being half full or half empty, I say the glass has 50% more capacity. Let's take advantage of it. <laughs> My thanks again to Anant Iyer. IBJ Susan Orr has more on the future disruption and opportunities facing Indiana's auto industry in the latest issue of IBJ. It's our annual showcase for innovation in the state, which we call the innovation issue. Its main focus this year is the future of energy in Indiana, and in a happy coincidence, we were putting the issue together when news came of the $2.5 billion electric vehicle battery plant planned for Kokomo. Several of our stories in the innovation issue dovetail into electric vehicles and related systems. John Russell examines how power storage will be vital to allowing solar and wind energy to thrive. Leslie Bonilla-Muniz lays out how Indiana will need to establish networks of electric vehicle charging stations. And Susan Orr details how Indianapolis-based Allison Transmission has invested $335 million to prepare for the age of the electric vehicle. Plus, we have stories on the rise of NFTs in Indiana, how high-protein bugs could be the answer to food insecurity, and some tips for keeping your employees feeling energetic and engaged. Again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at ibj.com. I will say it is quite a bit easier to access all of the latest local news about business and politics and all of IBJ's data on Central Indiana's business, community, and economy if you're a subscriber. It works out to about $2 per week for actionable information you're not going to find anywhere else. Just go to ibj.com and click on the subscribe button. And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast, which is edited by Leslie Weidenbenner. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week.